Well, for those of you who don't know, usually this is not the person who's up here. My name is Ben. I'm one of the associate pastors here at the church. Um, and it's lovely to see all of you. Uh, if you need a Bible this morning, feel free to raise your hand and Usher will gladly bring you one. And the kids are already leaving. If you're in the first or fifth grade class, you are dismissed. This morning we are uh, starting a new sermon series in the book of Philippians. It's in the New Testament, written by Paul the Apostle, so you can feel free to open up to Philippians chapter 1. And I want to start this morning off uh, by quoting one of the greatest, who I consider to be one of the greatest heroes of modern history. This, this, is, an, this, this, in, this is an individual who has so greatly influenced every generation since 1930 that his voice is present in every home. Uh, his words are easily recognized by almost every person in this room. Uh, he, he is no Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King Jr., uh, but his influence is so great that he has literally held the destiny of millions of children in his hands, setting them up for a life full of confidence and success. So without further ado, please listen as I read his famous words. And I will try to do so with the same amount of enthusiasm that he would. I quote, I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. The little engine that could. Little blue train engine. He thought he could. It's a story about the most unlikely of train engines pulling an insurmountable weight of toys and candy to the children on the other side of the mountain. The key to his success, the core of his confidence, his belief in himself. He thought he could, and so he did. Literally, when he's gotten up to the top of the mountain after repeating over and over again, I think I can, and as he huffs and puffs and gets, he says the word slower and slower, when he goes down the descent, he says, I thought I could, I thought I could. He believed in himself. And as I've been studying the book of Philippians and as I think about what seems to be the situation of the Philippian believers in the, in the, in the city of Philippi, and specifically the, 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 the hardships that they found themselves in as Paul was writing to them, I, I wonder, um, would it have gone better for them if they knew our little hero, the little engine that could? You know, Philippi, it was a key city uh, in the Roman Empire, found in what was then known as Macedonia. Uh, it was a retirement community, basically, for, for Roman military personnel. Uh, and it was also where, as we find out from Acts 16, uh, where the first Christian church in Europe was planted by Paul and his missionary team. Um, and though this church had some unlikely people, we find out that one of them was named Lydia. She was a successful businesswoman in Philippi and possibly a Roman jailer and his whole family and possibly even a young lady that was formerly demon-possessed. This was the beginnings of this church in Philippi. Just a bunch of people that had no correlation with each other whatsoever except for Jesus. And so though this church was formed in, in its conception uh, by some of the most unlikely of people, this church united very quickly 
as we find out from this letter, and from other parts of, of the New Testament, they immediately partnered with Paul uh, in his missionary endeavors to spread the gospel. And so they, they gave of their resources to support Paul. Um, but not only this, they, they themselves were also proclaiming the gospel, seeking to be united in the gospel, um, seeking to be unified as a church. And now Paul is writing to them from prison, we find out later in the letter. And it would seem as though, though they've been faithful to the gospel, though they've been united in the gospel, though they've been doing this good work, it seems like maybe at least to them that all of their endeavors for the gospel have actually been a failure. We find out in this letter that they're facing some level of persecution for their beliefs, and it seems that Paul says it's similar to his persecutions he faced when he was in Philippi. So this would include flogging and imprisonment. There's disunity in the church, specifically among some of the prominent leaders we find out in chapter 4. There's also a threat, at least a threat, if not a present reality of false teaching that is happening. Moreover, as we said, Paul, their beloved missionary and apostle, who they've been supporting from day one, is now in prison, and he thinks he's possibly close to death. And then they sent one of their own people, not on an airplane like we do, but by some means of transportation, to wherever Paul was in prison to help him. They sent Epaphroditus, and he almost dies in going. No matter what they do, it's just more suffering, more problems, problems from without, problems from within. They're seeking to be faithful to the gospel, and there's just problem after problem. And yet, Paul's main message in this book is that they, as many others have have recognized aside from me, that, that they need to continue to proclaim, prize, and partner in the gospel. So I just wonder, you know, if they just knew this little engine that could. Like, if the Philippians would just see that, like, if they could just believe in themselves. If they can just pull it together, if they can just get a grip and think positively, they could get to the other side of their mountain, having remained faithful to the Lord, right? Is that, is that how it goes? We're going to see what Paul says as we get into the first 11 verses here, where he thinks their confidence lies. And so this is where we get our big idea for this morning, which will be on the screen. It's that God will keep and complete his people. God will keep and complete his people. And, and we're going to look at this through two questions. So the first question pertains to verses 1 through 8. It's, can I be sure of this? Can I be sure of this? That God will keep and complete his people. Can I be sure of this? It starts off this way. Verse 1, chapter 1, book of Philippians. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. With the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. I thank my God. In all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. We'll stop there. So after his initial greetings where he introduces himself uh, and Timothy as servants, which that'll be a theme throughout this letter, um, and, he, and, and, and he greets the Philippians and the leaders in their church, he moves into giving thanks for the Philippians. Paul does. And specifically, he makes clear, uh, as we see in verses 3 through 5, that the reason that he's giving thanks and, and, and the reason that he's joyfully and frequently giving thanks, it's not just one time or offhanded, but this is a frequent occurrence when Paul is praying for them, that he's thankful and joyful over them, is specifically because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And this partnership, it consists of much of what I spoke of earlier. Their endeavors to share the gospel, to see the gospel go forth, whether it's giving to Paul or their own proclamation or their willingness to suffer in the midst of it or send one of their own to help Paul, right? Their partnership in the gospel is this common commitment to seeing the gospel going out. In the words of the scholar D.A. Carson, he said, it's a self-sacrificing conformity to the gospel. So whether they're Supporting gospel work, preaching the gospel, defending the gospel, suffering for the gospel, their partnership in the gospel defined the Philippian believers' life together as a church from the day of their formation until this very moment when Paul is writing to them. And if we look again at verses 7 and 8, Paul, notice that the foundation of this joyful love-filled relationship that the Philippians and Paul are experiencing mutually with each other, the, 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 the grounds, the foundation of that sort of a relationship is this partnership in the gospel. It is right, look at verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And then he says, and I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. In other words, the, the, the Philippians and Paul, they were in the trenches for Jesus together. And this formed this strong brotherhood, this strong bond between them. And what's important for us to, to recognize and to realize is, is the fact that this partnership in the gospel and these rich, joy-filled relationships that come with it, uh, they're not out of reach for us. I think sometimes we read these things in Scripture and go, well, that, that was for them then, and like Paul's an apostle, and like he actually like saw the risen Lord and all these things. This was not just for the New Testament era. The, the, this partnership in the gospel is nothing less than what, actually what we've committed to each other as members of this church. It's, it's, this is represented in our common commitment to proclaim the gospel as we gather every week. It's, it's represented in our, in our commitment to rejoice with those who are rejoicing, to mourn with those who mourn, to bear each other's burdens, to raise our children in the care and nurture and admonition of the Lord. 
It's, it's in our commitment to, to send and support missionaries. It's our commitment to sit under the preaching of God's word each week and, and defend that practice. Say, this is important. It's the commitment to, to serve one another as maybe you cook burgers with Sal Fernandez or, or as you greet people at the door or you sit with Ryan in the back and help run sound or do slides that we can all sing together. As you open up the membership directory and pray for one another and see each other's faces. This is, this is called partnership in the gospel. And as we do this, there is a deep sense of Christian camaraderie that forms. So in, in, in a very real way, what, what we see happening here in the, in the relationship between Paul and the Philippians is, is what happens among us as, as we partner in the gospel. And it would seem from the witness of the New Testament and from even what we're reading here that the, that the biblical way for fostering deep fellowship with other believers is by having fellowship in the gospel, by partnering together in the gospel. And specifically in the context of a local church. So we see that there's this joy-filled relationship because they're in the trenches together for Jesus. And then Paul inserts verse 6, and you're like, how in the world does this partnership, this common commitment to seeing the gospel go out, Paul seeing what the Philippians have been doing, how does this connect to verse 6? Paul says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. How does their partnership point to God's continued and sure work in their lives? It seems that it comes from this. Paul, I mean, imagine, it's, it's, it's been years of seeing them faithfully support him and faithfully represent Christ. And so Paul's now saying, listen, I'm looking at your conduct over the years, your faithfulness to God and the gospel. And when I see that, this can't not be God's work in your lives. Their partnership in the gospel proves that God is at work in them and among them. And, and, and their partnership in the gospel, therefore, acts to reassure them of God's powerful promise to bring that work in them to its completion. This work, as we're going to see as we continue through our text, is, is God's work of conforming them into the image of Jesus. Not just saving them for himself, saving them from sin, but sanctifying them for his own splendor. Brothers and sisters, one of the ways this morning that we can be sure that verse 6 is true for every single one of us, one of the ways that we can be sure that God will keep and complete his work and his people is through the daily, weekly, yearly evidence of our partnership in the gospel with one another. Often it's, it's not what we might consider the the grand and exciting moments of our walk of faith as Christians that remind us of God's faithfulness. According to this text, it's, you, you know, you know what reminds us and is a proof that God is working in our lives? It's the fact that you're here this morning. It's, it's, it's the monotonous, or dare I say, the seemingly mundane 
practices of life together with other believers that remind us of God's faithfulness to us. So that's why I say, the fact that you came this morning, the fact that you are sitting under the preaching of God's word, the fact that you are singing God's word to one another and to God, the fact that you are willing to serve one another every time you meet with somebody from this church to mutually encourage each other. Every time that you do that, it is like a neon billboard flashing in the night, reminding you and pointing you to this awesome reality of verse 6, that God has his grip on us and his grip is forever firm. Like these monotonous practices that we do, these regular disciplines of grace in our lives, are not mundane. They're actually extremely meaningful. But here's the even more amazing thing. Remember what I said at the beginning that so the Philippians have been faithfully partnering in the gospel. They've been doing this work over a long time. But now there's like there's stuff going down in their church. Like they're seeing people flogged and thrown in prison. They're seeing Paul thrown in prison. They're seeing their coworker almost died. There's stuff going down, which is, and, and all of that is working to threaten to undo their faithfulness to the gospel, their faithfulness to partnering with one another in the gospel. And yet, Paul has the audacity to say verse 6. Paul still claims, even in those circumstances, that the firmness of God's grip on them is unchanged. Not just in the good times, not just when actual partnership in the gospel is happening, but when there's things going on to threaten to undo that. The the reality is, is because of the atoning work of Jesus for us on the cross, God not only promises the forgiveness of sins, but full redemption. He promises his people like an actual future and a hope. So that all who repent of their sins and trust in him for salvation... He promises not only to save them, but then to keep them till the end. To hold them in his hands. Our confidence, as one one author put it, is not in the firmness of my grip on God. It's the firmness of his grip on me. So what that means for us today is that you can take any issue in your life as a Christian. Discouragement your struggle against sin and temptation, whatever it might be. And this text tells us it will not and it cannot rip you from God's hand. And, and I think we saw this about a month ago. I, I think verse 6 was actually fleshed out for us a month ago. As many of us came to face death, Minutes after our services, Ken Skaggs went to be with the Lord. There was a certain, for those of you who were here, and especially for Carol and the Spagnola family, there was a a shock to that moment. It was unexpected in nature. There was sorrow. There was trauma. 
And yet, even in the midst of that, I remember you know, multiple people were spread out, some in the foyer, a lot of people outside, kids were on the playground. Um, and I remember, I, I, maybe this maybe an hour and a half after it had happened, um, and Carol had been in here. I was out in the foyer. I think I was sitting next to Jonah, and um, they they had the, the the paramedics had had announced time of death, and um, I remember Carol walking out through a veil of tears and grabbing a friend by the shoulders and saying, "It's okay. He's with Jesus, right?" And in that moment, I was so relieved. My goodness, I was relieved I was a Christian. But it was an evidence. Like, it was literally an evidence that God was keeping Carol. Right? But not just Carol. God was keeping all of us. I mean, to, to see the way that our church responded to the aftershock of Ken's death. God was keeping us. I didn't see in in anyone or any of the conversations that I had an existential crisis of faith that God is no longer good because of this experience. The theology in our hearts was keeping us by God's grace. God was keeping us. And we weren't, as as I've heard said before by someone else, we weren't interpreting our... we weren't letting our experience interpret our theology. Rather, our theology was interpreting the experience. That is nothing but God's grace to keep us and preserve us. It was a proof that not, take. I said, take anything in your life, but take even death. Death was in our midst, and it didn't thwart God's faithfulness. That is the tenacious promise that Paul gives to these Philippian believers. That as he looks at their life together and goes, oh man, this is such an evidence of grace in your lives. It is so obvious to me that God is working in your midst. And by the way, he's going to bring that work to its end. He is not going to let you go. So the reality is, is if you are a Christian today, You can bank your life, your eternal security, your peace, and your hope on this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Or, in in the words of one author, The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. So to answer our question, can I be sure? Can I, can I really know? Can I be sure that God will keep and complete his people? Well, the answer from Paul is a resounding yes. Our partnership in the gospel, weekly, daily, yearly, consistently affirms this. And God's promises to us assure us of it. This is where our confidence lies as Christians that we will make it to the end. But then, 
does this mean that we just kind of let go and let God? Does this just mean that, like, is, is there anything for us to do? And, and, and that's the second question we're, we're going to answer through our text. So can we be sure that God will keep and complete his people? Yes. But in light of that, is there, is there, is there work to do? Is there work to do? We're going to read verses 9 through 11. Paul continues, he says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul, after he's laid out what he said and he's thankful for the Philippians and the evidence of grace in their lives and his confidence in God's continued work in them, he prays and he basically prays that they would continue to do what they've been doing and more, that they would keep growing. And and as others have pointed out, and I think rightly so, in this prayer there's kind of a crescendoing nature to this prayer, a building nature that happens in this prayer. So first Paul prays in verse 9, he says that he's praying for the Philippians that, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. In, in, in other words, Paul is asking God to so work in the Philippians believers' lives that their love for God and others would increase with regard to their knowledge of God, of his will and his word, and, and how to actually then live out that love for God and others in the context of daily life. That's discernment. So he's praying that for them. And the question is, well, what happens when Christians live in such a way that they're loving God and loving others in ways which are pleasing to God? He says, so that you would approve what is excellent. And then we have to ask, well, that sounds really great, Paul. Uh, Excellence, very vague. What, what do you mean? Enlighten me, please. He just says that we would approve what is excellent. We would approve what is good, what is the best. What is excellent has to at least be represented by the Philippians' partnership in the gospel, which is really a huge theme in this letter. Approving what is excellent is... I think, as we see through this letter, living in such a way so as to humbly sacrifice for others' spiritual well-being and live sacrificially for the progress of the gospel in the world. Well, the next question is, so, okay, what's the net result of Christians approving what is excellent? Well, he continues and he says, so that you would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. When Christians live this way, it points to their sanctification. They're being made more like Jesus, and it brings glory and praise to God. To to summarize Paul's prayer, to say this another way, Paul is basically just praying that the Philippian believers would be like Jesus, who set aside his life for the sake of the gospel to bring glory to God. Look at chapter 2. Verses 5 through 11. And this really is, in one sense, the center of the book from which Paul draws so many examples. This is one of the reasons the sermon series is named Following in the Footsteps of Jesus. 
Look at chapter 2, verse 5. Paul says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, so now we're talking about Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Paul's praying that they would be like Jesus. And this work of becoming more like Jesus is the work talked about in verse 6. This goes all over. The work that God is surely going to complete in the Philippians and in us is the work of making us more like Christ in this way. And yet notice, so in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 1, which is what we're looking at right now, um, Paul is praying. He's asking God to, to, to do this. But it's also as if his prayer acts as an exhortation to the Philippians themselves. That, yes, verse 6, God is working in you to complete his work, but I'm praying that your love would abound. Praying that you would grow. They also have a part to play. We, we even see in verse 6, and, and, and here, here's the textual connection, in verse 6, talks about God bringing this work to a completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And then down in verse 10, we see Paul praying for this work of growth to be like Jesus would happen in the Philippians' lives for the day of Christ. The point is this. God's powerful provision for and preservation of the Philippians' spiritual growth does not nullify their responsibility to grow in sacrificial living for the sake of God's purposes in the world. I'll say it again. God's powerful provision for and preservation of the Philippians does not nullify their responsibility to grow in sacrificial living for the sake of God's purposes in the world. We are called by God to have our love so shaped by God's will and by his word that we lead lives which point the world. Anybody looking at our lives could go, oh man, the fragrance of your life, the way your life looks, that can be nothing but God's work. It, it all, it, it, it's, it's Jesus in Matthew 5, that we would be salt and light, that others would see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. We are called to have our love so shaped by God's will and his word that people look at that and then they go, God is beautiful and worthy and holy and lovely. As Paul will tell the Philippians later in this letter in chapter 1, verse 27, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The point is is that we want want to aim in our practical living and how we spend our time, our money, our emotions, our relational energy. All of this should be aimed aimed at and shaped by God and his gospel as our highest priority. So so notice, Paul's 
looking at the Philippians' lives, seeing they're doing these good things, it's a testimony to the fact that God is working in them and he's going to complete it. And he's praying that they would continue to grow in this way. So there's God's responsibility, God's power at work in them, and then man, he has this responsibility to respond rightly to that, to continue to grow. But notice... The confidence to fulfill our responsibility for growth in Christ-likeness, I think in this text, is blatantly tied back to God's promise that he's working in us and that he's going to finish what he started. If God comes to you saying, hey, listen, there's going to be a harvest. I've given you seed. There's going to be a harvest are you going to be pretty confident in planting the seeds? You might not know when the harvest will come, all the troubles along the way. I am by no means a farmer. Emily really wants to get garden boxes in our backyard. (laughs) We'll see how that goes. I do know in growing plants that there are problems along the way, but God has said there will be a harvest. If I don't have that promise, it's going to be much harder to plant the seeds, knowing that, thinking that, well, maybe something will happen. If God has promised to complete his work in us, there's confidence to work for his glory. And this is why I think Paul doesn't just tell the Philippians how they can practically grow, though he does that in the whole rest of this letter. He spends a lot of time doing that. But this is why I think he's praying that this would happen. The, the key for us this morning is that a way that, that we responsibly and confidently take ownership over our personal discipleship and the discipleship of those around us is by praying. It's by cultivating a prayer life which is not simply focused on our own protection or various physical needs, but one which is saturated with God's priorities for our growth in Christlikeness. It's, it's to pray and ask God to help us individually, but also as a church, to grow in our love of the gospel. It's to ask God that he would shape the contours of our hearts so that the pinnacle would always and forever be Jesus. It's to ask God to help us to grow and to give us the strength to follow Christ as an example of humble and sacrificial service. It's to plead with God that he would save people from their sins and to ask him to help us endure suffering well and for his glory and for his name's sake. God will keep and complete his people. Is there work to do? And Paul says, yes. God's faithfulness to us, his keeping, preserving power of us both demands it, but it also empowers it. Paul uses this letter, as we're going to see in the coming weeks, he uses the letter to the Philippians to exhort the Philippians, as as one author put it, to, to reorient their priorities. They've been on a good path, uh, and there's some hiccups, some pretty big hiccups. And Paul wants them to continue to promote the gospel, to prize the gospel, to partner in the gospel, and he gives them really practical steps for how they need to get there. 
But his confidence, our confidence, for that growth, for the continued growth of our hearts and our lives and our congregation, that we would continue to promote and prize and partner in the gospel, our confidence lies in the fact that God will keep his people and complete his work in his people. Some trust in chariots, some in horses. Others are confident in themselves. Others say, I think I can. But we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Amen? Let's pray together. God, we thank you this morning. You are our confidence. You are our hope. We thank you that though you've called us to a lofty calling, following you, becoming more like Christ, we give you glory this morning for the fact that that is your work in us. The fact that we are even here this morning is an evidence of that. We praise you, we thank you, and we glorify your name. And we want to do that as we continue to sing now about your steadfastness and holding us close to you and not letting us go. Pray these things in your name for your glory. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.